Thanks, Josh. And uh, good to be back at Monty again after a little while. Always good to see familiar faces and some I haven't met as well before. So look forward to fellowshipping with you afterwards. As Josh said, I've been back for nine days after, I would say four weeks, but my wife would tell you four weeks and three days uh, in Africa. And uh, I just hope I don't preach with like a guy with jet lag this morning. I'll do my best to be clear-minded about that. But thanks for the opportunity to be with you today. Um, this morning's title is Don't Be Conformed to the World. And I, as Josh would tell you, I love a sermon with a verb in it. I believe every sermon title ought to have a verb in it because it tells you sermons are meant to help us to do something, to be active in some way. So I love a sermon with a verb in it. I'm not too keen with sermons with negatives in them. And this one has a, titles with negatives in them. And this one has one. And no criticism of whoever constructed this series at all. But it's interesting that the passage begins with a do not. So that's clearly taken from the passage today. Did you notice that? Do not be yoked together with unbelievers, he says in verse 14. But I hope you also notice in that passage that this do not uh, do this with unbelievers sits in the context of people that Paul regards highly as genuine believers. Did you notice? He says, God said, I'll live with them, walk among them. I'll be their God. They'll be my people. Uh, I will receive you. I'll be a father to you. You'll be my sons and daughters. Since we have these promises, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for the Lord. So this do not sits in the context of Paul desiring the best for these people, for these people who knew God, who believed in God, who loved God, these people who were sometimes difficult to Paul. And I was thinking this morning about um, how difficult church leadership sometimes is. And, you know, when you get to chapter 11, you'll see that Paul says, he lists a whole series of things that are a problem for him. And he says, besides all of this, I face daily the pressure of all the churches. Now, I've only ever been carried responsibility for one church at a time. I don't know what it will be like for Paul to carry the weight of responsibility for all of the churches. But one of the things that was happening in the book of Second Corinthians, and normally I would be listening to what's gone before so I have some idea of what's been going on, but on this occasion I have no idea what you've been doing. <laughs> but the book of Second Corinthians, one of the underlying themes is Paul defending his ministry. Is Paul stating his credentials? And it's interesting that uh, this idea of church leadership being difficult, needing to defend ministry, comes out in Paul's writings. Not so much in this passage, but it will in the one that we look at next week. And I was thinking about how difficult church leadership is and sometimes what you have to put up with as a church leader. And I want to encourage you, if you're in church leadership, that it is worthwhile. But, you know, sometimes I, when I look back over my journey, I had people who... Uh, Christian people mostly who said what I'd regard as horrendous things to me, things that I'd never say to anybody, criticisms I would never make to anyone. Uh, and yet, as a pastor, I was expected to receive them with good grace and never defend myself. Very interesting. Paul was very quick to defend himself for the sake of the ministry. Uh, you know, I would have people say to me, Oh, don't be defensive. And I felt like saying, well, don't be attacking and I won't be defensive. You know, like it's kind of, there's a bit of a quid pro quo here. Although you've got to be like Jesus who always turned his cheek and all those kinds of things, you see. 
So Paul experienced this in his life and in his ministry. And when he writes the book of Corinthians, he writes as a leader, as an apostle, but as a pastor. And that comes out very clearly and strongly in this passage today. And my hope is that you'll be encouraged in your own walk uh, as we look at this passage. Before we do that, though, just a couple of things by way of report uh, in relation to the people that you are sponsoring, uh, Joshua, Juvenile and Simon, who are squeezed in between Tony Lyon, my colleague, and I there at the Pan-African uh, Christian Brethren Conference on Missions. Tony and I were there for the introductory evening and one session. I wanted to go to one session to hear Joshua speak. It was great to see Joshua and Juvenile uh, being leaders in that environment and uh, really sensing the worth of investment in them as people and it's good to see the ministry being multiplied through what you do and through supporting them you're part of multiplying the ministry the work uh, in Rwanda in their case Uh, I'm not sure whether Graham's told you or not but Simon's got his school up and running I wonder whether that was ever going to happen he got the buildings but now he's got the people so that's that's great I was saying to him the other day when he was talking about uh, the difficulties he's facing with uh, paying staff and that kind of thing. I said, well, you know, like, I know in Australia we tend to plan everything before we start, but the way they do things there is they start and then make a plan with try and fill in the gaps. So it's a very different approach. And because of that, sometimes things do fall over quite spectacularly, of course. But uh, Simon's a very enthusiastic man, really seeking to serve the Lord. So it was great to meet him. It was also good not only to be with Juvenile in the work, but to visit with his family. And we had a great time together at his house over a meal where we talked a lot about um, the loss of Miriam and what that meant to them as a family. And you'll probably notice the Gloria is still wearing a, a Miriam T-shirt there. So that they feel that pain very much as a family. And Juvenile has some health issues, which may or may not be related to all of the grief that he's been through and so on. So... Keep praying for them in that as well. I know that uh, one of the issues that they're facing as a denomination in Rwanda is that our pastors aren't employees of the church. So they get paid out of the offering, but they're not employees of the church. The problem with that is that no money gets paid into government pensions, which means that when a pastor gets to retirement age, he's likely to be destitute. And so they're working on some things in their country around trying to provide for pastors in that way. One of the other problems, of course, is that some pastors want to hang on to their jobs so they have some money, right? So they they really serve beyond their, we would say, use-by date, if I can put it that way, um, simply because they need to survive. So at both levels, it breeds some difficult issues. So pray for Juvenile as he tries to lead that kind of process and work on some solutions for that. Personally, uh, they've bought another house. And the house that they bought has a small piece of land attached to it, which they're trying to build another house on so that when they retire, they have something to rent out so they have some income. So he's personally trying to be very thoughtful about what that means for him, but at the same time, he's trying to think about what it means for others. It was good also to be with Joshua and Sylvie and to meet, well, I shouldn't say meet the little boy, Eric, uh, whom they've taken into their home. Eric's a very bright spark. Next week I may show that. Anthony wanted me to show you a photo of before and after with Eric because we've known Eric for, I guess, about eight years, something like that. And Eric was living in very difficult circumstances, but Joshua and Sylvia have taken them uh, into their home as, uh, as their own child. And Eric is really flourishing in that context. Again, doing great work um, 
Joshua is responsible for 12 churches across Kigali as well as his own church at Regendi. Regendi has special issues because it's, uh, it's a very poor community and Joshua is always trying to think creatively about how he can help the people from there. So there's just a little snapshot of a few things uh, from uh, what was a, a, a great trip to Rwanda and South Africa. So to our, our passage today. It's very interesting when you come to speak on something to think about um, how your life intersects with the passage. And my life intersects with this passage in many respects at a personal level in terms of my own my own life and my own heart, but also in terms of my family history because very typically this passage gets applied by uh, conservative, isolationist, exclusive, uh, reclusive sort of groups uh, as a reason not to be involved at all with the world. And my life intersects with that at this point in that my mother was raised in ex- as an exclusive brethren, so I have some experience of those kinds of attitudes, though I didn't uh, grow up in that context myself. And when my mother got married, she married a man who was not, well, he said he was a Christian, but was not a Christian. Uh, and he had to, my mother had to leave the church and her parents were forced to choose either between their daughter or the church. It's that kind of context fits here. And often this passage about not being yoked together with unbelievers is often applied also to marriage. So my, my mother married a man who turned out not to be a Christian. My sister married a man who was not a Christian, became a believer subsequently. So are those applications right? Is that the limit of what we're to understand here? Is it these? Is it one or the other? Or is it even more than that? That's what I want you to think about uh, as we come to this today. So firstly to the issue, does this mean when he says, don't be yoked together together with unbelievers, does this mean we shouldn't have relationships with non-believers? I think I'll probably hear you shout from inside of you somewhere, no, but I'm not sure quite what that means. And it's a bit like that, isn't it? Well, you know, this passage can't mean no relationship with unbelievers. Uh, Because sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ assumes relationship. Jesus said in John 20 and verse 31, As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Where was Jesus sent? Into the world, to earth. To whom was he sent? He was sent to people. He was in relationship with people. He interacted with people all of the time. So the sharing of the gospel, being ambassadors for the gospel, assumes one person taking the gospel to another person. The link between those two people is the link of relationship. Now that doesn't mean you can't witness randomly to somebody somewhere that you've never met. I understand that. But in the main, as we see in the gospels, the gospel is taken from person to person by means of relationship and nothing really has changed. I'm here today because someone who is in a relationship with me brought the gospel to me. I'm living proof of that reality. Then Jesus' own example was to associate with unbelievers when he was here. There are those great passages in John 15 where Jesus gives the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin and the lost son. And we go, oh, they're great stories. But actually, if you read the introductory part to that passage, you'll see that these parables were given uh, in response to criticism of Jesus, Jesus defending himself, in response to Jesus um, hanging out with people who are non-believers. So Jesus' example to us is one of hanging out with people who are non-believers. Then we're commanded in the book of Galatians 
to do good to everyone and especially to one another, but to everyone, you notice that? And who does everyone mean? Everyone means the people in the world, the people around us, the people who are not believers to do good to those people. Uh, when it comes to the issue of marriage, uh, Paul was quite clear that Christian spouses who who became believers when they married to an unbeliever were to remain married to them. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul anticipates that Christians will have relationships with non-believers. He's talking in that passage about discipline in the church and talking about uh, separating yourselves from people who say they're Christians but don't behave in a Christian way. And he says, I don't mean separating yourself from the world because otherwise we'd have to escape this planet in order to do that. So Paul assumes that people who are Christians will have relationships, genuine relationships uh, with non-believers. So really it doesn't mean that we're not to have relationships with anybody. Of course, that then ask, makes us ask the question, well, what does it mean? We know what it doesn't mean, but what does it mean? So where does this concept of not being yoked together with unbelievers, where does this come from? Well, the first mention of this is in Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy chapter 2, where the Israelites were commanded not to plough with an oxen and a donkey yoked together. Now, I'm not suggesting that believers are oxen and unbelievers are donkeys or vice versa, but that's the origin uh, of this uh, of this concept. Now, I grew up in a farming district, and one of the things that uh, that I knew when I ploughed the paddock with the tractor, not with the oxen or with the donkey or the horse, as my grandfather used to, but one of the things that I knew was that when I started off, I had to fix my gaze on the tractor on that post at the other side of the paddock. Because if I started here and fixed my gaze at the post there, I would make a straight line. And that seems obvious, doesn't it, right? But there's no lines in the paddock to follow, right? You have to figure out a line of sight to follow. And one of the goals was to have a bunch of straight lines. And once you got one straight line, then you could plough straight line after straight line after straight line. Rudimentary kind of stuff. What happens when you put together an oxen and a donkey, I wonder? Think of the relative strengths of the animals. If you read the commentaries, a lot of them will say, this was for the good of the individual. You know, so the, the donkey is, uh, the, the oxen is not bearing too much load, the, docks, the donkey's not goofing off, all of that kind of thing. A lot of the commentaries will say that that's what's about. But actually, I think that this was for the good of the outcome. Because if you've got two unequal animals, you're not going to end up with a straight line. And I'm imagining being the poor farmer with a single furrow plough hanging onto this thing, trying to follow an oxen and a donkey that are jockeying and fighting for position all the time and ending up with a line that looks like this up the paddock. That's what I'm imagining was happening, right? So I think this was a very simple farming regulation, if you like. Don't put those animals together. Otherwise, you're not going to end up with a straight line. You're not going to end up going in the direction that you want to go. And I think this underpins the idea here. If you're going to yoke yourselves unequally with unbelievers, you might end up going in a direction that you never intended to go. You know, we, we tend to think of our Christian life as kind of, you know, I believe and I go to heaven in the end and between the two, there's a straight line, right, of growth. That's the ideal, I guess. We all know, though, 
those of us who have been Christians long enough know that the straight line kind of looks a bit a bit like that, right? But going in the right direction. But if you yoke yourselves in this kind of way, you can end up with another variable as well where you go, not only are you going, but you're going like this side to side as well. So that's a very messy line that you can end up with. And I think Paul's concerned that the people that he's working with don't end up with a messy line, that they have a good outcome in their faith. And I think there is some potentially some localised background to this. Now, I noticed we had one avid Geelong supporter here this morning who came in his gear. Who was that? He's got it off now. Oh, he's still not wearing it, brother. Oh, you got, the, got it there. That's good. I'm glad he's, Give us a wave. Yay. I wanted to say this morning, you know, who was on the swan side, who was on the cat side, who was on God's side, which I assume would have been everybody, right? That would have been my line today. Um, but, you know, are you a member at Geelong? Are you a member of the club? Okay. So when you signed up as a member, did you have to sign an oath or anything like that? No, no you just had to pay a fee, put your name on the line, right? I say there's, there's no oath. You didn't have to swear allegiance to any particular god to do that, did you? I don't mean Gary Ablett when I say that by the way. Right? None of that involved, okay? Well, one of the problems that a lot of the early Christians had, and particularly those in business was, uh, you had, in order to conduct your business, you had to be part of a trade guild. So, you know, if you're a mason or if you're a baker or if you're a jeweler or whatever it was, there were various trade guilds that you belonged to. In order to the, belong to those trade guilds, uh, you had to swear allegiance to the god of that trade guild. You see how that becomes a problem for early Christians? Not only a religious problem, but an economic problem. You know, if you don't swear this allegiance, you don't get to do the business. If you don't get to do the business, how are you going to have an income for your family? Very real, live issues. And maybe when Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 10 about food sacrificed to idols and that sort of thing. He's not just thinking about the, the normal feasting that went on as part of those kind of ceremonies at the, uh, at the pagan temples and so on, but he's actually thinking about the feasting that went with the celebrations, that went with the guild groups where they sacrificed food uh, to their, their patron gods, patron deities, if I can put it that way. So this was a very live issue for these people. And a very real thing that they faced, Do can I remain part of this and be a Christian? Or having left it because I'm under such financial pressure with my family, do I go back to that? They're very real questions that in many respects we don't have to face and it's not easy for us to find parallels at that kind of level uh, in our culture. But it's quite likely why, why Paul is dealing with this issue here because one of the pastoral concerns that you read with all of the apostles and even the book of Hebrews, I think, is devoted to this idea is the idea of persevering as a Christian and not going back. And clearly Paul was concerned that some of these people would go back, that they'd renege, that they'd give up, give, give up on having Jesus Christ as their Lord and subject themselves to someone else effectively uh, as their Lord. 
So this is probably why this is beyond that. So really this means that this idea of not being yoked means not being so closely committed in a relationship that it locks you into another person's belief system and practices. You know, one of the things that uh, has been interesting for me as our ministry has developed in, uh, in Africa is really I'm looking for people who have character and people who have what I would call uh, mission alignment, if I can put it that way. People that you know that you can work with because they're headed in the same direction. And this is one of the things that Paul was concerned about here. And he actually gives some little couplets to underscore this. Look, if I was writing this, I would say, look, being a Christian and being one of those people is just like being chalk and cheese. That's the expression that I would use. But they're not the expressions that he used. He says, you know, what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? What harmony is it between Christ and the God Belial? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? And the answer is, there's none. They're like chalk and cheese. So why would you involve yourself in this way with these people when you have nothing in common with them? So that brings us to the question of what does uh, being unequally yoked really mean? Or not being unequally yoked really mean? And that actually comes out in these last verses, in the, in the second section. Because he, he gives some, some promises here, all of which come are quotations from the Old Testament. You know, God says, I'll live with them, I'll walk among them, I'll be their God, and they'll be my people. So this tells us that God desires to be our God. It's already come out in the book of Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, that God is jealous of our affection. God wants us to be wholly devoted to him. If God is desiring uh, to be our God, he's desiring that we have him as our God, that we be his people. And this comes out here. I'll be their God and they'll be my people. Therefore, he says, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing and I will receive you. I will be a father to you. You'll be my sons and daughters. And then he concludes in chapter 7, verse 1, since we have these promises, that's what God will do for us. Let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. It's interesting that he uses the terms body and spirit there because there were ideas that uh, you could only please God in a certain kind of way and you couldn't please God with your body, right? But Paul is very clear that we please God with our body and our spirit. So this is the idea that I walk with God as his child, devoted to him, without being diverted in any way from him or from holiness. And it's both those things. It's him, it's being devoted to him, and it's holiness as well. So it's how I am in my relationship with God, but how that plays out every day where I am that Paul is concerned about. So let me offer a few thoughts around this because this is where it comes down to practice is this about is this about separating ourselves from non-christian people uh, as a bottom line no it's not 
Is it about not getting married to an unbeliever? Well, it might be. But it's not the only example, right? It might be. It's interesting because uh, I've had in my own family history a mother who married a man who was an unbeliever uh, and never believed. My sister who married an unbeliever who later believed. So there you go. What does that prove? Nothing. But be careful about the kind of interactions that you get into. So the first question I have is, do you have any relationships that are compromising the purity of your faith and actions? Just think about that for a moment. Think of all of your, all of your relationships. Are there any that are compromising you that you're aware of? Well, if there are, that would constitute an equal and unequal yoke from which you should remove yourself. Now, it's very interesting. This talks about unequal yokes with unbelievers. But, you know, I think it's possible to have unequal yokes with some believers as well. And that's, that's not what the passage says. This is Peter now, right? I want to be very clear. I remember many years ago I had a good friend, a uh, good Christian friend, he and his wife, good Christian people. But his heart was to be in mission. Her heart was to stay home. Now, of course, there's no way he could go into mission without the support and partnership of his wife, so that never happened. And there's part of his life that's been unfulfilled. But in a sense, as a couple, they were unequally yoked. They were equally yoked as far as being Christians was concerned, but they were unequally yoked as far as the direction of their life was concerned. Do you understand that? So it's really important, and I know I'm not dealing primarily with people today who are probably looking to get married, though some will eventually, no doubt. Um, Make sure when you're looking for somebody that their heart and life is going in the same direction as yours. Not just enough for them to be a believer, but their life is going in the same direction. I think that's really very critical indeed. Which goes to my next point. Do you have a relationship that you're considering? It might be a personal relationship. It might be a business relationship. It might be a work relationship. If this is something that could compromise the purity of your faith and actions, really it's something that you shouldn't enter into. That's what this passage is teaching us about. If it's anything that would compromise our faith and our action, don't enter into it. And this reminds me that the scripture talks about how we should be alert and watchful and careful. Don't just go blindly into things, but to evaluate them and what they are likely to do for your faith. Interestingly, I, uh, I'll go back. Sorry, I've gone forward. I don't know what I'm doing, Andrew. There we go. Interestingly, I had a, a, a situation in when I was in Rwanda with one of the organisations I worked with where there were three staff that had gone. And uh, I was talking with the leader about that and he said two of the staff were people who, who uh, had high character but low competency. They were people who left of their own accord to do something else. But the other person was somebody that they fired And he said he was a person of high competency but low character. And, you know, these are things that we need to think about in advance. 
You know, I've, I've, been, I've been part over the years in church leaderships where we've employed people and it's not worked out. It hasn't gone well for a variety of reasons. And our, my inclination when that happens is to, to criticise the person, right? But who selected them? See, if, if, if I select the wrong person, is that the fault of the person? No, it's my fault. I'm responsible for that. I'm the one who did the evaluation. I'm the one who chose. So this speaks to me about thinking very carefully about the relationships, be they working or otherwise, that we enter into. Being cautious about those things as far as it's possible to do so. Then I think there's a broader one for all of us. And that's this. Are our value systems shaped more by what this says or by what the world says to us? You see, the the teaching of the culture is all pervasive. Whether we're in relationships with unbelievers or not, the teaching of the culture is all pervasive. In our media, particularly in what we watch on our televisions, in what we read in our newspapers and magazines, what we look at, on our devices and so on. That's representing to us a culture. That's representing to us a set of values, a way of doing things. Only you can answer the question, which is shaping your life more? Is it what the world says or is it what the word says? You know, if my life is more shaped by what the world says, then that's something I need to repent on. It's something I need to address and to correct. Paul talks in Romans 12, he says that uh, we, we should give our lives to God as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, which is our spiritual worship. And then he talks about having our minds renewed by the word of God. In Philippians 4, he talks about how if anything is excellent or praiseworthy or honourable, think about those things. So what we fix our minds on is really important. And I think that we make a big mistake in the church because we talk about people having their hearts changed in terms of that being, you know, I believe in Jesus and instantly my heart is changed. I'm a brand new person. Everything's fixed. Well, that's true at one level, but it's not true at another level. Because if you become a Christian at the age of 20, you've had 20 years of having your thinking trained in another way you need to be retrained we all need to be retrained and really in a sense life is an ongoing retraining experience where we continually feed our mind on what god says and what god thinks about things i'm reminded of this very much at a personal level at a personal level i had a father who didn't believe in me i had a father who um, didn't like what i did in terms of christian ministry So do I let my life be determined by what my father said, if you think of that representing the world, or what God thinks of me? We all need to think God's way about ourselves, about the world, about life. Even in that passage that that, uh, you obviously looked at last week, Paul says, "From from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view. We don't look at people the way the world looks at people. We look at people the way that God looks at people. 
Uh, when I was in Africa, somebody said to me, um, I like you because you don't think that you are better than we are. Well, I said, that's because I'm not better than you are. You know, how you see yourself is very important for how you interact with people. For me, I just see myself as a sinner that God saved. And I think that everybody is like that and has the potential to be saved just like I was. That changes the way that I see people. I had a young man say to me once when I was at Warrandyte, how do you cope with your job? And I I thought, I said, what do you mean? Because I thought they meant, you know, funerals, weddings, I don't know, whatever, difficult people. He said, well, don't people tell you bad stuff about themselves? I said, well, sometimes, yeah, why? How do you stop yourself thinking badly about them when they tell you the bad stuff about themselves? Good question, eh? I said, oh, that's very easy. He said, how so? I said, well, nobody's ever told me anything that I either haven't done or said or don't have the capacity to do. He was a bit horrified that his pastor might have the capacity to do the worst thing that somebody had ever told me, but that's the truth of the matter. But by God's grace, I'm not that person. I see that potential for everybody. So very important for how we see other people. The world sees people in terms of what they accomplish, what they wear, how they look, what their station is. We should never see people in those kinds of terms. That's not how God looks at us. So let's look at people the way God does. So this is where this passage about the world infecting our thinking really affects how we relate to other people as well. When it comes down to worldly thinking versus God's thinking, I would summarise it this way. John in his writing talks about uh, about the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. I contrast that to the prophet Micah who talks about what God requires of us, which is to act justly, to love mercy and to walk humbly with our God. And the way that I would simply describe it is this. We either look at life through the grid of self or through the grid of others. And really, if I'm approaching life through self, I'm compromised. I'm a approaching that from a worldly point of view that doesn't mean that I don't need something right? it doesn't mean that I deny the, the, the genuine things that I need but if I'm looking at myself exclusively and what will advance me and my family and my cause and my, my, my if that's me I'm shaped by the world but if I'm thinking in terms of others then that shows my thinking is being shaped by what Christ says so really, Christians, as Christians, we should be really engaged with the people of the world to be ambassadors, but not to be like them. I don't mean not to support their football team or not to need a car, and that's not what I mean, but not to be like them in terms of our deepest values. But too often what I find is that Christian people often separate themselves from non-Christians while living with very similar values to what new Christians live, non-Christians live with. When I grew up in my non-church attending home, there were in my little town of Ridgely in Tasmania two brethren assemblies. 
called the bottom hall and the top hall. For those of you who have familiar, I see that rings something familiar for some people. And uh, those churches split over, as all churches do, over who runs the place. It might have masqueraded as some theological argument, but it's always about who makes the decision about the theological argument that people split over. And I was always intrigued because the young men from the top hall were the guys who had the hottest cars in town. They wouldn't have radio in their home. They wouldn't have television in their home. They didn't smoke or drink or chew or go out with girls who do. They didn't do any of that stuff, right? But they had the hottest cars in town. And it always, I always ask myself the question, why? Now, I mean, I'm talking about, I was a 13, 14-year-old. I didn't know anything about the Bible, right? But I always ask the question, why? And I thought, these guys have to look like somebody else in some way. And they've found what for them and their community is the acceptable way to be just like the people of the world. And in fact, in terms of hotness of cars, better than the people of the world. I used to admire some of those cars, I have to tell you. And I think what this tells me is that sometimes when you are restrictive in your practices, you always find um, workarounds that let you that let you out a little bit. Which goes to my final point. I think that this is not so much about what we do, but what's in our heart. Now, many of you have been Christians for a long time. Who's been a Christian for more than 20 years? Okay, more than 30 years. More than 40 years. Wow, you're amazing heroes of the faith. That's great. That's wonderful. So I'm guessing probably you're not going to the pub at night. You're probably not doing drugs. You're probably not smoking. You know, you're probably not going out with loose people and all that kind of thing, you know. What I found is this. The longer you are a Christian, the more you eliminate the stuff that everybody can see. But the heart is much harder to deal with. And things like the pride of life, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, are much harder to deal with because nobody sees those things. Nobody but nobody. Just you and God knows that about you. And that's why we need to have our mind and our thinking and our heart continually shaped by what this says, not what everybody's saying around us. And if we'll do that, we will actually have something worth offering to the non-believers that we are in association with. Because there'll be something about our life in our heart and in the depth of who we are that really speaks to the world. And I'm sure that's who God wants us to be. So may the Lord help me and may the Lord help you to deal with our hearts, to deal with our minds, to deal with our associations so that we make sure that we're getting the right input that helps us to make the right choices. Let me pray for us and then Josh is going to conclude. 
Lord, I thank you for people like Paul who really spilled his heart when it came to helping people. Thank you for this word that spoke directly into a context that these people faced, which is maybe somewhat practically different from ours, but nonetheless, which has real meaning for us because it goes to the heart of who we are before you as your children. And I want to pray for me and for everyone in this room and everyone watching that our hearts may be devoted to you. You know our hearts, Lord. You know how prone we are to wander in our hearts from you. We pray you'd help us to stay true to you. And we pray you'd help us to do the practical things in our life that will help to feed that good part of our life that grows us in you and for you and towards you. As we heard today, this life is a journey towards our eternal glory. Help us in the in-between stage to walk more and more with you. We pray your blessing upon this, our heart's desire, and on one another for what you have for us this week. That in every situation we may be like Jesus and how we act and think and how we react and act towards people. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.